1: For this episode for a good month. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar.
2: And I'm Tom Knezik, and this is going to be a really special episode. Uh, today we're lifting up our heads a little bit, shifting our focus, a little bit different spot than we normally take you, and um, we're going to look at the grand scheme of things, not so much our local area, but what's going on on a global level. So uh, really, it's, that's how we grow.
1: It is. It's a, it's a little bit out of our comfort zone. Every episode, we, we typically tend to focus on what is native to us, uh, what is native in our little world. Sometimes it's New Jersey. Sometimes it's the Northeast. Sometimes it's, it's our country. But we're just a small part of that natural network in our world, and all these networks need to work together to keep our planet healthy. Um, the thing connecting us all together are our oceans, and that's one topic we have not really focused on. So today we're going to take things in that, that direction.
2: Yeah, and we are really, really fortunate to have a very special guest on today. Uh, not only is he one of National Geographic's explorers and residents, but he's a renowned marine biologist and ecologist. He's an academic-turned-activist, founding Pristine Seas and winning numerous awards, such as the Young Global Leader Award uh, and countless others. Um, but today, he's here to talk to us and, and you about his new book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. Dr. Sal, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and give us your bio.
3: Hello, uh, Fran and Tom. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. Oh, thank uh, you. My name, my, uh, I am Enrique Sala, a National Geographic Explorer in Residence. Um, I used to be an academic, and now I, as you said, I'm a conservationist full-time. Uh,
1: one of the things, or one of the quotes I love Uh, is, uh, I guess, in reference to your decision to turn from academic to activist, was you were tired of writing obituaries for the oceans.
3: Yeah, you know, I I used to be a professor at the University of California in San Diego, and I was studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, the impacts Mm -hmm. of fishing, global warming, and one day I realized that all I was doing was writing the obituary of the ocean you know rewriting it with more and more precision so i felt like the doctor who's going to tell you how you're going to die with excruciating (laughs) detail but not offering a cure and of course as you can imagine that was not fulfilling it was on the verge of being depressing and i decided to quit academia and dedicate my life to try to bring back the health and richness of the ocean
1: so I guess part of that, part of that step is the, the new book that you have written that will be coming out uh, very soon, uh, August 25th, I believe. And mm-hmm. Tom and I both love this book. I can't, I'm can't. i a slow reader, and I cannot believe how quickly I, I, I consume this book. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I feel that it does a fantastic job outlining what we know about nature, which in the grand scheme of things is a relatively small amount. And it applies it to where we are headed and why we need to fix it and Tom and I were both saying to do if, if you could give any novice person that wants to make a difference or learn about this any one book we had this discussion this would be the book we would want them to start out with um, because it looks at it as a global scale and how it affects everything not just our own little world so um, we know that the book was technically completed before the COVID-19 outbreak prompting you to go back and write one last chapter but after all your years of study why do you think now was the right time for this book? Why, why was this, why were you ready for this now?
3: Well, first of all, friend, thank you so much for your nice word. you made my day. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. You know, there is never a bad time, I think, to make the case for why nature is important. But last year, I felt it was the right time for me to write about it, because I wanted to share the, you know, the main ideas I have learned, I have been thinking about for 30 years. Uh, i've been conducting scientific research and also it was the timing was good in my opinion because next year in china 196 countries are going to meet and agree on how much more space we are willing to give to nature this is the conference of the parties of the un convention on biodiversity yeah and the science is telling us that we need at least 30 percent of the planet protected by 2030 and this is the target that we are pushing with our friends of the of the campaign for nature. And, and but, te- te- you know, te-
1: technically, we need more than that, but that's a that's a compromise.
3: The science is telling us we need half of the planet in natural state, mm-hmm. half pl- land and sea. But thirty percent by twenty thirty, we think is <clears it's> an <throat> ambitious enough uh, timeline. But still, even though the science is clear, you know, then people uh, are telling us, well. Um, You know, why do we need to protect more of nature? So I I wanted to show, by telling stories, how nature works. How is it possible that all these millions of species of plants and animals and microbes interact and make our world work, you know, Mm -hmm. make the earth a place where we can live and thrive? But then people ask, can we afford it, right? mm -hmm. So I make the economic case too. And the economic case is very clear. You know, we have a study that we released on one yeah. last uh, on on J- on July eighth that showed that for every dollar we invest in protected areas, nature gives us five dollars back
2: wow. and that was one of the things I really loved about the book and was happy to see um, was that economic perspective because so many times when when we're talking about oh you should probably install a pollinator meadow or, or you need to use more native plants, people think about it from a business lens they're saying well but it's so much more expensive and i'm gonna have to do all this maintenance on it and they don't look at the the value over time and how much value they they're getting back and just the value of ecosystem services whether it's pollinator benefits or cleaner water or just overall habitat or storm protection
1: so many things Um, Mm -hmm. and it's you know i think it's really telling that that you started off by saying it's you're going to discuss how much we're willing to give back to nature. And I, (laughs) I, which kind of leads me, I think as humans, we tend to think of ourselves as larger than nature, um, that it serves us. Uh, it, it, um, revolves around us instead of us being just a part of the balance of nature. Um, we've, we've kind of evolved to outthink many of our predators, including mother nature and disease. And do you think given today's atmosphere that the current pandemic is nature's way of, of rebalancing, um, as if our ecosystem's self-regulating through feedback loops.
3: I like the way you think. <laughs> uh, well, when the, you know when, when the pandemic happened, to me that was the loudest wake-up call. Okay. You know the, the the strongest reminder that we are all together in this, and that if we tamper with nature in one part of the world, now this can affect everybody's lives and, and the global economy. You know, as we have seen during this pandemic, the health and the well-being of the richest person of the planet or the, you know, head of state, as we have seen recently, depends on the health of the poorest person in the poorest country. You know, we are all citizens of our, our biosphere, that living layer of the planet. And, and I'm very humbled, but what just happened? Yeah. So instead of going back to the pretense that we are masters of the universe, you know, you, you we need to be... Are really humble, and you know, we can send a rocket to Pluto and take photographs and make scientific measurements. But all our technology, sorry, hasn't been able to prevent a tiny virus from jumping from people to people and across borders. So, mm-hmm. is this a way for Gaia, right, for that <laughs> global ecosystem, yeah. to self-regulate? Maybe you know. And and actually, I like to think that conser- we conservationists are part of the immune system of Gaia. Mm-hmm. but yeah. but whatever it is, the fact is that we are not outside of nature and that we should do no more harm to it.
1: I, I and you you make a good point. I think it's interesting that we spend billions of dollars at uh, looking at Mars as if w- if we need to flee and <laughs> and start life on another planet instead of investing in fixing where we're at right now. Um, I think that's pretty telling. So do you think given that situation that world leaders are ready to hear? Here that we would, need to dedicate
3: this land. I would think so. You know, when you think about this this report that we released in in July, tells us that if we want to protect thirty percent of the planet by twenty thirty, the annual cost would be one hundred and forty billion dollars. You'd think, wow, that's a lot of money. But wait, this is less than what we spend—that what the world spends in video games every year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. It is ridiculous. So the money is there. We're just using it for for frivolous things or, you know, the governments of the world subsidize activities that destroy nature Mm -hmm. with five hundred billion dollars every year. So the money is there. We just use it or or the citizens accept for governments to use this money to prop up industries of the past, to prop up industries that destroy our life support system, which doesn't make any sense
1: well you you know i i agree 100% and you know and and i think for for most people when they think of nature they tend to just think of their current surroundings or some place that they visit it um or that they interact with but they don't look at it globally um and i think that's very telling as well that like how how does each country's view differ like how does the destruction of our natural ecosystem whether it be Agricultural farming, uh, or 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 business related, how does that affect other countries, um, and vice versa, just in our biosphere?
3: Well, again, I think that this pandemic has made it very clear. And before, you know, let's remember there were other zoonotic diseases like SARS, yeah. Ebola, HIV. You know, you tamper with nature in one country, you eat wild animals in one country, or encroach upon pristine forests. And the consequences now, with our global life lifestyle, can stop the global economy. So this notion of um, America first, or my country first, yeah. is totally delusional. Yeah. You know, there can be no prosperity here if the rest of the world is in flames, and, and vice versa. You know, the, I, the International Monetary Fund estimates that the cost of the pandemic might be up to $9 trillion. Wow. You know? And, and and look at what what happened in the United States, right? Yeah. Um, not only in terms of loss of human life, but the economic downturn and the consequences that are going to last for for years. So you know, no country today is immune to what happens in the rest of the world.
1: I, I yeah, and and I think hopefully a lot of people are seeing that. One one of the things that I'm curious, I I I know. When dealing with this there's a lot of other factors at play and there's businesses who who tend or feel that they're going to lose a stake or lose traction uh by succeeding giving back nature um you know and we've definitely seen the size of certain national park land uh decrease in certain years but but you've done a really good job at showing scientifically how saving the ocean can create more revenue than overfishing it is it possible with with businesses and, and crop production and corporations to show the same type of economic growth by saving land. Um, you know, I think of companies that are, that are doing good things like Starbucks with their cafe practices, um, with really investing uh, in good practices and good farming and, and paying more for those things. Do you think other companies will follow suit or do you think they're scared at this prospect?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and you know, companies. I've been talking to corporate CEOs, and they say, you know, we will do the, the right thing, but we don't want to be the first movers, right? We want a, <laughs> a, a level playing field. Yeah. So it is the big companies, most of them, except the really evil ones. Yeah. That they, they are, they are asking governments to set regulation, so then everybody has the same incentives to act, and they know that if they uh, do better for the environment actually is going to be better for their bottom line too and you know there is also a myth that you you hear some people saying so many people that we need to cut more forests and convert more grasslands and fish more uh, in the ocean because we will need to feed 10 billion people very soon but the truth is that we already produce food for 10 billion people only that we waste a third of it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Uh, so we don't need to destroy more more of nature to feed ourselves. What we need to do is to prevent this loss of food from the farm and from the ocean to the table.
1: When when we first started this podcast, it really started off. It, we were we were trying to connect nonprofit companies that are doing good work with with uh, local um, homeowners or people that just want to get involved to see what is being done that's really good out there and how they can get involved and it's kind of the more people we have on (laughs) the more we realize how much has been destroyed and how it's affecting everything and and the the overall theme has been loss of habitat um Mm -hmm. you know it just keeps coming up and and the problems that that occurs uh you know we've talked about overpopulation of deer um i think a good example uh we were just saying um there's areas of forest in New Jersey where deer were once 10 deer per per square mile that are now over 300 deer per square mile. Um, wow! And that pyramid shift has destroyed the shrub, shrub layer of our forest, destroying even more habitat and food sources and other species. Um, and you can't reproduce a new forest overnight. So, have we gone too far? Like, can can the result of overdeveloping be reversed? I know you 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 discuss in your book how fisheries uh, that that institute a no take rebound pretty quickly can we see the same thing Mm -hmm. on land is that possible
3: oh absolutely you know we could spend the entire hour talking about doom and gloom, right yeah Uh, and we know that uh, three quarters of the inhabited inhabitable land has been altered by human activities and that two thirds of the ocean have been affected by industrial fishing and so on and so forth but the good thing is that life and the ecosystems that uh, species form have this extraordinary capacity to regenerate and self-assemble in this complex ecosystem, even in the most unlikely places. And uh, if I may, I like to talk about an extreme case and yes. then a better a better way to do things. Okay. So everyone, you, you you will remember, and everyone in, my, in our generation will remember the explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in mm-hmm. 1986. Yes. Uh, this neighboring town of Pripyat, they had to evacuate people from there permanently. Uh, even if the pets had to be killed because they were spreading radiation. Wow. And then nature took over. You know, Now there are tourists going there. You've probably seen stories on, mm-hmm. in the media. The yeah. buildings are crumbling. They are being conquered by shrubs and trees. And the city is now the territory of wolves. Mm-hmm. So apparently, the, the built habitat, the cities that we build, cannot survive without the builders. Right? They, they just fall apart. So in a few thousand years, maybe, that town of Pripyat, will look like the Mayan cities in the jungle when when they were first <laughs> rediscovered under yeah. you know the thick canopy of green but of course you know, this is not the ideal way of restoring nature but this shows that nature has this amazing ability to, to bounce back if we give her some space so we to if we want to see the return of the forest and the grasslands that you were mentioning yeah. you know we can start by removing all threats to a place right let's start by doing not doing no harm then we can replant the right type of species the native plants that uh, you you talk about and and but also we can help the ecosystem accelerate that process of self-assembly by rewilding meaning introducing first the native herbivores animals that eat different types of plants and create the conditions for other species to thrive and when the ecosystem is ready then we could reintroduce the predators and i love the example of yellowstone where 31 wolves were reintroduced Yellowstone National Park in 1995, 50 years after the last wolf there was killed. And the wolves started by controlling the numbers and the behavior of the elk, which then spent less time grazing and eating the, the small tree saplings. So the trees came back and with the trees, the entire ecosystem came back. So we can, we can do it. Nature has the ability, we just need to give her space.
2: Mm-hmm. We, I'm sorry, Tom, go ahead. Oh, I was going to probably take it in a different direction than Fran would have, but when you wrote about that in the book, one of the things you you mentioned was in um, in the United Kingdom how the last wolf had been killed. I think you wrote it was 1300. 1390 or something. Mm-hmm. Long time ago, yeah. long time before mm-hmm. anyone even probably knows relatives that were even uh, uh, trace their family trees back that far. But you started to talk about regenerative agriculture where um, we brought on uh, on. That herbivore species that were a lot of times cattle or kinds of deer and then Mm -hmm. the the apex predator then became humans but using it as a food source and actually targeting Mm -hmm. those and then selling them either mail order at restaurants or supermarkets. Is that something that's scalable on a much larger level or is it something that is kind of like a smaller uh, niche. Because we, we've actually
1: talked about this in, in New Jersey when we talked about that deer problem with 300 yeah. deer per square mile and, mm-hmm. and it's not really feasible to reintroduce wolves in New Jersey. We'd love at to see right it. Now. Yeah, At least right now we'd love to see it but we don't think that's feasible. But that doesn't mean we can't fix it. Um, we just, as as the apex predator, we have to find better ways to control it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what, what we were curious what your thoughts on that were.
3: Yeah, no, no, you you're absolutely right. It would be a little tricky to reintroduce wolves in new jersey right <laughs> yeah. now <laughs> yeah and uh, but you know about 300 deer per per uh, square acre or square kilometer it's it's crazy it's so it's too much right they, they will eat everything out so i think we can scale this what the uh, tom the m- example you mentioned is this beautiful story of uh, a farm in england called nepp yes. k-n-e-p-p and uh, if the listeners haven't read it yet. I really recommend this book by Isabella Tree. It's a real name, Isabella Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And the book is Wilding. So it's a story of how they rewilded their farm. It used to be a farm like a, any other farm, bad soil, um, heavily dependent on pesticides and chemicals, and they couldn't compete with the large farms in, in better soils. So they decided to abandon agriculture and rewild the place. So they started by uh, removing trying to, uh, removing everything that was um, agricultural there well, and they replanted with wildflowers and within a year the insects came back the birds came back the predators of the birds came back and then they reintroduced species of herbivores that were similar or the same as, as the native ones so they reintroduced red deer fallow deer roe deer they introduced a species of cattle that is similar to the ancient cattle of Europe, the auroch, and they were introduced. Uh, they introduced one species of pig that is very similar to the to the wild boar. And these species, all eating on different plants and doing different things to the soil and to the vegetation, they accelerated the return of that ecosystem. And now it's like a, an African savanna in England. <laughs> mm-hmm. And people, people are going there on saf- photo safaris to see the nature that they, they have never seen in their lives. And, 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 and this you, is an example of what can be done by just two people. Imagine if countries decided to restore grasslands, former grasslands that have been overgrazed by cattle. It could be, it, We could see a miracle here.
1: Oh, our, our Midwest alone, when you think of the, the, the buffalo herds roaming that were, were killed off, and, and that's all agri- agriculture crops now, mm-hmm. um, the amount of you know you 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 would have to fix that before you could get the buffalo back you know mm-hmm. it's they don't even have mm-hmm. the the amount of land that they need um but to see that happen would be extraordinary mm-hmm. <laughs> like More than who, it. who who wouldn't want to go see that you know um i one of the things that we did to prepare to talk to you besides reading the book was we watched your ted talk from about 10 years ago and a lot of the the things you talk about there are in your book as well so you know, one of the things that I loved is you didn't just say these are things we need. You actually give scientific fact and mm-hmm. and show you've been able to prove through pristine seas. Hey, if you if you protect the the oceans, um, you can be maybe more profitable between tourism and and fishing would improve. You could catch more by fishing less. Um, at the time of your TED talk, you were thinking twenty percent of the ocean you would like to protect for biodiversity, uh, given that oceans uh, create fifty percent of the oxygen we breathe. Is that now, now you're shooting for for thirty. What would what would be your goal for for both land and ocean? I don't know if you would have a different percent for for each. Like if you if if you had your way, if you were a supreme leader for the day.
3: Oh boy, I I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would be. The science is very clear. As uh, we have dozens of studies on land and in the sea that are telling us that we need, if we want to prevent. A massive extinction of species and the collapse of our life support system. If we are to achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, we need half of the planet in natural state. This is what uh, my friend E.O. Wilson uh, calls Half Earth, okay. which is another fantastic book, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, E.O. Uh, e. e- e. Wilson, okay. Half Earth. So we at National Geographic, with our friends at the WIS Campaign for Nature, And now about 30 countries, and growing, are pushing for a target by 2030 under the UN Convention on Biodiversity of 30%. But this 30% is a minimum. It's a milestone to where we need to be.
1: One one of the questions that I had written that you, Actually, was debunked as I finished your book <laughs> because you you covered it. Oh. I wrote it early on, you know. Because I think of and I have to admit I'm a little ignorant of other cultures and other countries because I'm not as worldly traveled and and I tend to think that maybe certain countries, uh, maybe or or not even certain countries, certain cultures maybe don't rely as heavily on the scientific fact uh, and it may be more spiritual. But you actually cover that and and. Talk about how spiritual people are about nature mm-hmm. uh, and cultures are and what they've done to protect it. I think it was New Zealand uh, you mentioned um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: with with one perfect example there. Are but are there cases worldwide where the, the science isn't necessarily met with open ears? Uh
3: well, I think we the three of us live in the United States. I was right going to say you can say <laughs> it's American. You, you, yeah, yeah, that would have yeah, been so my guess without without yeah. going elsewhere. Yeah, you know, again, I, I'm, yes, there are countries where right now the leadership is anti-science and anti-common sense. Um, but you know, one good thing of this pandemic, again, is that all of a sudden, people became interested in, in data, and mm-hmm. they wanted to see graphs and trends and science, right? And, and who's the most popular man in the United States right now? Anthony Fauci yeah you know the infectious uh, disease expert if people people the public understand the, the power of science and you know everybody's is thinking of uh, you know, the time where we're going to have a vaccine well where is the vaccine made not at the convention of a political party is made in scientific you know laboratories mm-hmm. so you know without science of course the world wouldn't run and and I think that most people understand, and most leaders understand, but uh, of course, there are still a few places where science is um, not convenient mm-hmm. for yeah. political purposes. Yeah.
1: Are, are there countries that are that are ahead of the curve, um, that are really doing an exemplary job of, of preserving nature or,
3: or turning things yes, around? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the United States used to be a leader. Yeah. Uh, Yellowstone National Park, created in 1872, was the first national park in the world. The system of national parks that was created here was uh, extraordinary, but now there are other countries that have uh, surpassed us. You have a little country in the Himalayas, Bhutan. Mm-hmm. It is in their constitution that 60% of the country has to be protected. Wow. Wow. That's The little country of Palau in Micronesia, they are a small Island country, but they call themselves a large island nation. They have, this year in January, they implemented a marine sanctuary that protects 80% of the waters. Now, Chile, another fishing country, has protected, fully protected from fishing, a quarter of, of its uh, waters. So there are countries, both large and small, that are showing leadership. This is what gives me hope,
2: mm-hmm. actually. And then meanwhile, here in the United States, we're... Talking about selling off public land for, for <laughs> business deals, yeah, and for business deals, those kind of things. So, which is alarming. Yeah, well, you know, it, and it is alarming.
1: And and you mentioned in your book too how much space is needed for certain certain ecosystems mm-hmm. to survive. Um, and it's you know it it keeps getting more and more fragmented and more smaller. And unfortunately, as you mm-hmm. make it smaller, it doesn't have the resources if it's fragmented for. To support everything that's there they they can't really move uh or roam and that's that's what's alarming to us mm-hmm. It's that it's in a lot of i know in some cases it's getting better but in a lot of cases we see it declining um and that's tough for us um
2: as going back to the the global scale and looking at which countries are doing well and which countries might be doing poorly say we all we at this um the, the meeting you were talking about in China, we come to an agreement, say, hey, this is what we need to do as a world, as a globe. This is what we need to meet. Who's going to be in charge of holding everyone responsible? And how do we prevent a situation where you have uh, the United States saying, oh, well, we're not doing everything we're supposed to, but look at China, they're not doing everything either. And you look at, at the UK, they're not doing everything. So we're okay not doing everything as well. Who's going to hold keep keep that train moving in the right direction
3: yeah this is exactly one of the problems with many international agreements that they are not legally binding they are in most cases uh, volunteer commitments so the united nations convention on biological diversity is the entity that is supposed to uh, set the agreements set the targets and, and monitor but at the end of the day, it's every country that is responsible for protection within their own uh, territory, within within their own borders. So we have seen it in the United States, where President Trump decided that he didn't want the United States to be in the Paris Climate Agreement anymore. So he started the process to to withdraw. Right. Yeah. So I hope that at the country level, the citizens are going to be the ones making sure that the governments deliver on their promises uh, by, in some cases, uh, voting. Voting for the politicians that uh, you know, fulfill their, their values. Yeah. And also by making sure that if there is uh, blatant violation of, uh, of these commitments, that people will make their voice made clear. And this is something that I think has been very positive this year in the United States and around the world of people demonstrating for massively for for the things that they thought were right
0: mm-hmm.
1: we we have a voice in numbers and and everyone will have the opportunity uh, in the coming year to to make that vote if that's what's passionate to them so uh, yeah
3: well you know that the first law of politics is is re-election
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah
3: right and, and there is nothing that scares the politicians the most then um, Losing voters.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I would imagine at any time, it's especially close to a, a re-election year. It's got to be difficult to to make drastic change or, or push drastic change um, through that way. I would imagine that's difficult unless it's something that everyone's behind and it's mm-hmm. it's a crowd pleaser. I you know I think protecting nature isn't necessarily always the the biggest crowd pleaser. I think mm-hmm. sometimes, unfortunately. Uh, but one thing. One thing that I realized in reading your book, um, and we deal with native plants and we deal with the land is the education for me with how little I personally know about our waters, um, and that's that's one of the things I really appreciate it. so and and I think, You know, going back to the land, bees are a great example of how little we know about nature, uh, much like the algae of of the oceans. And the work that Sam Drogi does at the National Bee Inventory really is cutting edge and he's just starting to scratch Mm -hmm. the surface about what we know about native bees and their importance. You know, And he had stressed to us that it made them realize how much they didn't know and how little data there was. What organisms of the ocean need that same type of study uh, right now to understand the health of our waters?
3: Well, the, the thing is that typically we don't know what's the importance of a species until we get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then we, yeah. see, we see things happen, right? Yeah. The, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, we uh, fur hunters got rid of the sea otters. Yeah. And then their favorite prey, the sea urchins, exploded and they ate all the kelp forest. And all the species that lived within the kelp forest went away. So you cannot know what the role of the sea order in the ecosystem is until you know, the, they, they are gone. And with millions of species of plants and animals and a trillion different types of microbes in the world, it, it's really impossible to know what the role of most of them is. And I, I like to use this example that is in the book, is something called Prochlorococcus. that's the scientific name of a, <laughs> of a bacteria. Okay. That is one of the smallest bacteria. It's only a millionth of a millimeter in size. Okay. It is so small that scientists didn't discover it until 1988. Yet, wow. this little bacterium is one of the most abundant creatures on the planet. You know, you're talking about 300 deer per hectare or per square kilometer. Uh, we are we have 20,000 of these bacteria in a single drop of seawater. And what do they do? They do they do photosynthesis like the mm-hmm. plants on the land, and they produce oxygen in, uh, in the process they actually produce the oxygen in every other breath we take wow wow and we didn't know about the existence of these bacteria until 1988 it's crazy I
1: mean, it's amazing i mean that's such a short period ago to learn something like that and it makes you wonder what we don't know what are we still going to discover mm-hmm. and say how do we how did we not know that
3: <laughs> exactly but what we know is that you know, the more abund- when, when it comes to assessing the health of an ecosystem, what we have learned, and I think we can extrapolate to this to most ecosystems, is that the more abundant the predators, the healthier the ecosystem is. Yeah. So if, if you can immediately know, uh, or no, at least we have been diving in places that range from pristine to totally degraded, and if we jump in the water, if you jump in the water and you see lots of sharks, that's a healthy place. Mm,
2: right. That's
3: what you want to see.
2: And that's similar to uh, some of the the uh, entomologists we've talked to in the past, where they said that, well, the sign of a healthy pollinator habitat is when you have a lot of dragonflies and, and ladybugs and things that are going to eat the pollinators in their yeah. larvae., yeah. it's having those predators. Mm-hmm. That's a really good sign that it's a healthy ecosystem, yeah, there you go. And it's you
1: know it, there's so many great examples in your book, just even of ecosystems. Tom and I both loved your analogy of New York City as a man-made ecosystem and how closely it relates to a, a natural ecosystem uh, and showing a form of human succession. And it made me think of so many sociology studies that I've seen um, that really kind of mimic natural ecosystems, but, you know, they don't quite get it right. Uh, I grew up in Levittown, Pennsylvania, which is which was at the time the largest plant community of its, of its day. And William Levitt, when he built it, there's five types of houses, um, and each development had it, only just one type of house, and, and as he walked away from it, he felt he's like, wow, this is my biggest failure. I've segregated classes, and and that's not what I want to do. So when he built his next Levittown, which is now Willingboro, New Jersey, he put all five homes in each development, and it ended up <laughs> turning out to be his biggest failure because it ended up just dropping the property value of all the houses to the, to the, the smaller of mm. the houses, and the city kind of declined. And even though they're just across the river from each other, they're really – uh, economically and in, in much different places so it's kind of like he, without studying it he just tried to cheat succession by having all the grasses shrubs large canopy trees all at once <laughs> uh, and he, he kind of blurred the lines between symmetrical and asymmetrical boundaries and I still think that these are things that we're still trying to learn but nature just seems to already know them so do you think that nature knows them, do you think they inherently know them, or it was just a matter of evolution that's happened way before we even got here?
3: Uh, I think they evolved this way over time. You know, remember that when life started to appear on Earth, the environment was so poisonous that we and most creatures that live today couldn't live. You know? mm-hmm. It was cyanobacteria, like this Prochrococcus, very small bacteria, that started to produce uh, oxygen through photosynthesis. Okay. They were the first uh, plant-like um microbes that started to produce oxygen they started to fill the atmosphere with oxygen well that didn't go well for all these creatures that uh, for which <laughs> oxygen was poisonous but thanks to that we're here now so but what seems to be the rule over the history of life on our planet is, is the the growth of diversity and complexity it just gets more diverse and more complex except okay. of course during the five mass extinction but it seems that now we are also bent to destroy that richness and that diversity.
1: You know, even just recently, uh, I think as a nation, we're just starting to learn the role of invasives um, and, and, and how, how much damage they're causing for our forests and our land. Um, And, and that's just something that really has hit home in the last probably 10 years, Mm -hmm. I'd say where they're like, Oh, maybe we shouldn't be growing burning bush. Maybe we shouldn't be growing barberry. They're just starting to realize some of these issues. Um, It's, is are exotic invasives an issue in our oceans as well?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I grew up in the Mediterranean Sea. When I was a, a kid, I did not see a single invasive species. Okay. Now, the Mediterranean has 800 introduced species. Wow. Most of them coming from the Red Sea through the, through the Suez Canal. Wow. And I, I like to use this, this example. In 2008, some... Colleagues and I were doing surveys of the coast of Turkey, and you know, we had expected to see these seaweed forests; the, the bottom would be covered by by seaweed, and there was nothing there. It was a barren, uh, and we saw lots of, and lots of rabbit fish, introduced species from from the Red Sea. And these okay. rabbit fish they eat they eat algae. We thought, "Wow, well, mm-hmm. is this the cause? Are are these invasive fish able to turn an underwater forest into a into a desert?" Wow. And to prove that, we did an experiment. We placed cages, plastic cages, like uh, this plastic fencing for, for gardens. Okay. So we put plastic cages in, in some areas, areas where the, the rabbit fish could not ac- access the, the seafloor, right, where they could not graze. Okay. A- and it took only one month for the <laughs> native algae to boom, come back. Wow. So that yeah. shows... Two species of rabbit fish, two species of fish from the Red Sea, and these guys are not very big, the biggest one is maybe a foot long, were able to turn the Eastern Mediterranean into an underwater desert. Wow. wow.
1: You know, just going off topic for a second, I'm sorry, I'm going to derail those for a second, because you, you brought up where you grew up. So one of the things that my fiance related to in your book, <laughs> my, my fiance was born in <laughs> Poland, and one of the things – on our first date, one of the things she she talked about was reminiscing about uh, foraging for mushrooms in the forest and having them cooked as soon as she got back, that it was something that her mom still does that her dad and grandfather taught her to do. And that was a large portion of her day every day. Her job was to go out and forage for mushrooms. So she was curious. She was saying she was taught – besides obviously visually being able to tell this one's poisonous and this isn't poisonous, she was told if she didn't know – to put the tip of her tongue on the gills, and if it tingled, it was poisonous, and if it didn't, it was okay. <laughs> and she was curious if if you had a similar similar story.
3: <laughs> <laughs> wow, no, I don't remember my father teaching me that. Well, no. I guess I guess we were a little less adventurous, okay, and uh, we stuck to the species of mushroom that we were that were known known to be poisonous,
1: okay. Yeah it might have been a little different time for her it was it was yeah no i i would not try
3: i would not try that myself (laughs) it
1: it doesn't sound like food was as abundant during those years so i could i could see why they were a little more adventurous um so
2: one one of the things i'll actually bring up is um another uh i think the people that you brought into nature are probably a little bit more important than the ones i've brought into nature but you really did a good job of putting that picture of when you've brought some of these uh, people in positions of power and uh, you gave them presentation and maybe it didn't have quite the effect you wanted, but when you showed them um, either you took them snorkeling or in the one case you you let them drive the little uh, robotic submarine, um, that's what really gave them the spark and said, oh, this is something that's really important and, uh, and we need to save. And, um, I've had those same instances even just with my now wife where when we were dating and we'd go and I'd just taken a hike and just say, oh, that's this. And this is this plant. And this is this way because the deer did this and that's why this invasive plant's here. And then she started to get it and things that she'd never seen before, it kind of opened her eyes and she realized how important it was to preserve them or change them or, or, uh, do take the necessary action, um, I guess where I'm getting with that is that's not available to everybody. You have, especially in the United States where, uh, I just found out last week where I think it's like 70% of the country or 70% of U.S. citizens have never left the country, not even gone to Canada or Mexico. Um, A lot of them don't have access to nature, uh, especially if they're living in in urban environments. How do you convince them that preserving 30% of the planet is important.
3: Yeah, it's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) And, and uh, yeah, you, you know, you take somebody to a beautiful nature, natural place and they have to be soulless, heartless if they don't fall in love with the place, right? Do you take anybody to a redwood forest or diving on a pristine coral reef? And what we have seen is that you take a leader to one of these places and the little kit, the little little uh, kid in them just comes back and you can see the, the eyes you know, uh, open, bright eyes and a smile and unfortunately they are busy people we cannot always bring them to the field with us and then we have to bring the field to them so we that's why we produce these videos and films, at the National Geographic to, to inspire them but when we're talking about something that is more abstract like 30% then for leaders what we are doing is uh using the economic argument because Mm. the minister of the environment he he, she will get it she'll say okay no i understand this place is incredible very important we need to protect it but then when they have a cabinet meeting the finance minister is going to ask but how much is going to cost
0: Mm. right yeah
3: (laughs) and and you know we have studies showing that the benefits outweigh the cost and that the initial investment is less than what we spend in activities that destroy nature so uh, like it or not, we have to use the economic argument as one of mm-hmm. the main arguments with political leaders.
1: Yeah, I just think how much more appreciative Tom and I would be if you took us diving with you. <laughs> yeah, we would. That would that would be <laughs> a real eye opener oh, for us.
3: Oh, <laughs> you only needed to ask. <laughs> <laughs>
1: is is there cutting edge research that you're aware of that you're excited that that that's going to be coming out sooner or someone in the field that's that's working on something that you're really excited about
3: well the things that um i don't know i don't know um so but <laughs> <laughs> but um i don't know you know it's, what i love is to be surprised okay uh, oh. lo- looking at a uh, n- um, n- new story or opening up a scientific journal and seeing a a study that is like, wow, this is so cool. Or we really need that. Yeah. But but we have a, we have been working. Well, I know about the study that we are uh, doing, we are have a study in, in review, in us in a scientific journal, okay. that shows that if we protected more than 30% of the ocean, actually, this would have t- triple benefits. It would help one to preserve marine life, biodiversity that is unique and irreplaceable. Two, it would boost fisheries catch globally. And three, it would help the ocean continue to store more carbon and help us to mitigate climate change. So more protection can help us with food security and with uh, climate change mitigation.
1: Mm-hmm. If, if you were, were sitting here and you had a skeptical business person uh, and you had their ear, what's the greatest example – that you could give them of of how it actually paid to have nature over business. If you had to convert a businessman right now, is there is there one example that that would
3: knock their socks off? Um, I think it's much easier to convince a country leader than a um, <laughs> corporate CEO. But no, there are great examples. For example, um, I read a story in the New York Times this year: the Empire State Building. Uh, the management of the empires the building, the owner, they decided to change all of the insulation of the building, including the windows. Okay. It cost them, um, mil- I don't remember how many millions of dollars, but they have been able to cut the energy consumption by 40%. Wow. Which means that every year they are sa- saving $4 million dollars mm-hmm. In, in energy bills alone,
1: which which pretty much pays for 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 what was just mm-hmm. done,
3: after a few years, yeah, it, yeah. it, yeah. Pay, it pays it pays off. It, it offset the, the cost. So that's a, that, that's an example. For, you know, talking about yeah. uh, oh, yeah. a real estate
1: um, <laughs> business. <laughs> Speaking of surprises, um, the foreword of your book is written by the Prince of Wales. Um, how did that happen?
3: Well, his Royal Highness is a committed conservationist okay he has warned about the destruction of the world of the natural world for decades and he's written eloquently about it he's published really beautiful books one uh, one of my favorites is one called harmony okay um very eloquent very poetic but also based on, on science and and economic numbers so i asked him if he would write a foreword for a book uh, on an issue that he cares passionately about, and, and I'm honored that that he agreed to do so. That
1: is wonderful. We we were excited to see that. Yeah. That was <laughs> yeah. that was very yeah, when
2: cool. when Fran first <laughs> told me that um, we were going to have you on. He's like, yeah, and the, the Prince of Wales <laughs> wrote the foreword. Well, that doesn't make any sense. But then, as I started to look into it, it it did make a lot of sense. And it, I think it gives you a little bit more clout when you're bringing this book to the table, too. Yes
1: yes i agree and la- and like we said I, this is yeah. the, the one book that you know that we already hold in such high regards mm-hmm. like if we were to give you know we were saying all right if you were to give three books to someone and tell them to read we would want them to read yours first and then mm-hmm. you know we threw in the same company of bringing nature home by yeah. Doug I, I, yeah, i'm
2: and, not sure if you're familiar oh uh, you are so, so sweet that's you, <laughs> that's yeah. so kind of <laughs> you thank you so the, much
1: and uh benjamin vote uh with his uh was it new, garden, a new garden you know i think these are all books that people people need to read mm-hmm. uh if if they're concerned even if they're not concerned they're eye openers of what what we need to know
2: so tom did you well, know something? thank you i feel flattered. oh no thank you so it, this is actually a question from my my brother who uh
1: he's really disappointed he's yeah, not he's, in on this <laughs> Well, we this told podcast. him we were
2: doing this he really wanted to be a part of it steve steve <laughs> g- g- travel steve yeah. is
1: worldly traveled he goes all over for diving he's and- a,
2: a avid uh spear fisherman and, and diver and um actually our, our whole family is, does some scuba diving my uncle's actually a scuba diving travel agent and he's going to the philippines and all over the world uh i would be surprised if he doesn't know who you are but um my brother's question was if he if he wanted to get involved with what you're doing and be your right hand man, what would he have to do to to take those steps? And I guess I'm even going to broaden that out and say, if people wanted to get involved, not just uh, helping hands-on, but monetarily, how can they get involved with the things you do?
3: Well, I like I'm I'm liking this discussion. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So there are many ways people can can help. And, you know, when I was a, a little kid growing up on the Mediterranean coast, I wanted to be I was fascinated by the the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, by the French explorer, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a diver on his on his boat and go around the world. But I wrote him a letter. And uh, an assistant wrote back this very nice, sorry, but you know, we have more demand than supply. Yeah. And you know, but we appreciate your efforts. Good luck. Um, in the same way, you know, it's it's uh, when we do our work on expeditions, we go on ships, and of course the space is limited. But mm-hmm. there are things that people can do to help. And if it's not through our Pristine Seas project, and if you want to know more about our ocean conservation project, you can go to our website, pristinesis.org, pristinesis.org, okay. and, and learn more about what we do.
1: We're gonna um, we're gonna put that link when we publish this. We're gonna put that link and other links on our website so people can find all these mm, really wonderful.
3: Quickly. Thank you so much. I'm no problem. And but there are all the things that people can do in terms of monetary contributions. I think that in 2020, uh, one of the best ways to to use our money is to contribute to the campaign of the presidential candidate that you think
0: Mm
3: -hmm. is going more is is more is closer to to your values when it comes to the environment Mm -hmm. and i am doing that myself and i'm telling all my friends that this is the year this is a key year so that's a that's a good way to to put your voice and your money to work Mm -hmm. but also there is something that everybody can do every day yeah that would help and you guys are, I, I, it's, this is like preaching to the choir. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why why I, why I dare to say that in the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. But it's uh, having a plant-based diet, right? Yeah. yeah. Plant-based diet is good for you. It's good for the planet. It would reduce CO2 emissions enormously and it would reduce the footprint on our lands. It would allow us to restore much more of the, many more of the forest and the grasslands and the wetlands that we need for a healthy planet.
1: When when I think of our footprint, too, just based on our diets, um, I think of things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch um, mm-hmm. and and all the disposable waste from 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 food that that doesn't need to be there. And that's you know, and it's things that those things were created inadvertently, not not purposefully. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know if it. I guess it's fixable, but like who who owns up to something like that and says we'll we'll take care of that? patch that guard garbage patch does does anyone claim uh any i shouldn't say responsibility i'm sure no one's going to claim responsibility for that but uh just that to vow to yeah. fix that they assert- going to take initiative yeah. in
2: in going to clean it up yeah
3: there is one private effort uh, trying to do that but the problem is that the garbage patch is in international waters okay. it's beyond any country's jurisdictions of course you know it's the, you know you can wash your hands it's not my problem right <laughs> yeah. even though we all contribute to it but you know we cannot remove that, that patch or any other five big ocean patches but we can make them smaller yeah. you know, we, we can clean parts of the trash at the surface and that would reduce the risk of death for seabirds sea turtles marine mammals which mm-hmm. would be great but this is just a small part of all the plastic trash that is in the ocean. Yeah. You know, most of the trash is underwater and very small, what, what we call microplastics. And that's, that's impossible to clean. At, at but at least, yes. yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, but we can do the right things to reduce and hopefully stop you know, yeah. the amount of plastic going in, into the environment
1: one of the things i appreciate at least that you know some of the companies they may not be able to control where that waste goes but like someone like corona i think they developed a um a can ring the the six-pack holder that's biodegradable and made of fish food <laughs> so if it does end up in the ocean, so it will biodegrade and, and hopefully feed fish at least it's people are thinking about how they can make a change mm-hmm. um instead of just saying it's out of their
3: hands yeah, no, that's very creative. I yeah. didn't know about that example. Yeah,
1: they're actually. I think I believe it was Corona, but they're pushing other companies to to take part in it. They don't want it to just be them. They mm-hmm. developed it in hopes that everyone would use it uh, to kind of reduce that, which I thought was very a, a great challenge, um, and it was nice to see. But I I know we've we're we're, we're getting close to the the end of, our time, the end of our time. So we always end. Our show with one final question, but we're going to change it And then it a up. final thought. And then a final thought, yeah. But we're going to change it up just a little bit for you. We typically, our, our, our final question is always, what is your favorite native plant? But we're going to change it up, and we're, we want to ask you what your favorite algae is
3: and why. I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, usually people ask, especially kids, what's your favorite marine animal? but poor plants you are absolutely right i love it i love it that's the first time anybody has asked that
1: oh awesome
3: okay um well i was talking about that earlier today so probably um my favorite algae is the the giant kelp okay now the giant kelp why because the the giant kelp is is the redwood of the sea it's it's a plant is the largest big algae in the ocean so you can be diving you can be at 120 feet and there you have the base of the plant that reaches all the way up to the surface and these are the fastest growing plants one of the fastest growing plants on the planet almost a foot and a half a day wow Wow. so if you are very patient and have good lungs you probably can can see them grow (laughs) and and you know the beauty is that when the the giant kelps uh, reach the surface they continue to grow and they create a canopy atop the water mm-hmm. surface. So you are down there diving, you look up, and you see these, these plants g- growing to the surface like, like trees. And you can see the sunlight filter through the canopy as th- if through the stained glass of a cathedral. Wow. That's why I like the giant wow. kelp.
1: And, and if I remember correctly, you list that in your book as a foundation species am i correct correct, correct? so yes, without it, yeah with the loss of that that ecosystem declines
3: all the species that depend on the plant for food and that live on the plant and the habitat it creates is like you know you remove all the trees in the forest and there is no habitat for the birds yeah
1: that is a great pick i love that pick so that's going to spark me to go do a little more research on mm-hmm. it and know more about that yeah. that's that's what i'm taking away from this so we after the last question, we always leave it open for a final thought. If there's anything you could say, if there's anything you want to promote uh, as well as your book, if, if there's things that you just want to summarize or, or mention, you have the floor. It's, it's all yours.
3: Thank you. So I would just say that everything we need to survive depends on the work of other species right the every yeah. morsel of food we put in our mouths the clean water we drink the oxygen we breathe depends on all these 9 million species of plants and animals and since i'm in your podcast especially the plants which are at the base of all life on earth yeah <laughs> yeah um and um i think this is the time this pandemic is the loudest wake up call. If we don't change our ways now, when will we? Because I think that now everybody understands that if we don't change our broken relationship with nature, we are going to have another pandemic and then another, and, and the next might be worse than this one. So we do need to convince our leaders next year in China, in 2021, to agree to protect at least 30% of the planet by 2030. As one of the main things we have to do, we need to face off fossil fuels also, we need to change the way we produce food, but uh, protecting more of nature, giving nature more space is absolutely key. It's our the best and cheapest uh, insurance policy for humanity. <laughs>
1: and And you phrase it a great way in your book, also, when you talk about we're the only species that kind of cheats this by uh accessing the necrosphere um and how we're kind of like stealing from one account to to pay the other account, mm-hmm. which I think is a great way to put it. I don't think a lot of people think of it in that way. It's just like, oh, this is we'll create more, it's an abundant resource, we'll be okay and uh it's 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 not mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's not um. Tom, you want to go next, or you want me to go?
2: Uh, I'll yeah, I'll go. Okay, oh, I think well, I'm you' am gonna go last. <laughs> oh, okay. So, with uh, the the my brother's question, I thought started thinking about your answer and saying, well, you were saying when you were a little kid, you wrote a, li- a letter to Jacques Cousteau and uh, said, how can you be a part of that team? Well, I'm started thinking, well, what if there's a ten year old or a twelve year old out there who's listening to this or read your book, and they want to. Become what you've become, because obviously you, even though Jacques Cousteau said, "Oh, there's more supply than demand." You can't you can't come <laughs> work with us. You started doing. You forged what your own. Your, way. You forged your own path and got there as well. What What advice would you give to that that uh, young teenager or, or kid to get and achieve what what you've uh, excuse me what you've achieved?
3: Yeah, we tell them. Make sure that you know what your passion is, what you're really passionate about. You know, Elizabeth Gilbert says that you know your what is the thing that when you are doing it, you don't you don't care about eating, sleeping, peeing. You know, it's just that thing that what you're the most passionate about. Um, and then, what you are good at.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: If you can combine both uh, into your job. You are going to be a very, very happy and fulfilled person. Mm-hmm.
1: Awesome! Thanks, good. Awesome, advice. thank you. Is that your final? That was it. For? Yeah. Do I get to get deep for a second? I've been you getting can. deep a yeah, lot. You can get wow! Very deep. <laughs> wow! You know, but it's—I've been taking a lot of this really at heart, and I think, um, you know, even noticeably for me, once the pandemic hit and everything closes down, uh, my fiance and I pretty much every weekend have been hiking every weekend going to different destinations and being at one with nature and you know and i deal with nature for a living and sometimes you kind of get disconnected from that um and i kind of really feel this podcast has been has awake like it's awakened me um and it this is the best education i feel like i get every week we learn something else that Mm -hmm. that you know you think you know but you don't really know and it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper and man it just it, it's it's like perfect timing uh, yeah. for me, and I I love where this is going, and I love the guests we have, and and I love that you came on today with us, uh, Doctor Sala, and this has been a, a wonderful experience for us. Um, thank you, thank you so much.
3: Yeah. No, Fran and Tom, thank you so much. It's been uh, I love your podcast, and thank I you. I am really honored to be here with you today. Well,
2: thank, thank you, you. too, thank and you. Uh, and thank you for everyone for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed listening, Doctor Sala. Uh, please pick up a copy of his new book. Um, the Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. It's coming out on August 25th, uh, just a couple days. So make sure you pick up a copy. In fact, uh, just before the show, Fran and I decided we're going to give away two copies. Yeah. So first, you can enter by by joining our, our Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast Facebook group. And then on the... the um, uh, on the, the post. post for this. Yeah, thank yeah. you, friend. On the post for this episode, uh, leave a comment about what you felt like, what you thought about the episode, things that you think you could do to help save the planet, and, uh, and make sure you share that post as well. The other way you can enter is by leaving a five-star review and also just letting us know what you, you thought about the, the episode, um, either on Apple Podcast or, or Podbean or wherever mm-hmm. you can review the podcast, because mm-hmm. that goes a long way for us. Yes, so. yes. And so, make yeah.
1: sure not only buy a copy for yourself, buy a copy for a friend, buy a copy for your local library. Yeah. Make sure it's accessible to anyone that needs yeah. to read this.
2: So, yeah. And um, I guess like we are saying, you can, you can follow Dr. Sala on Twitter uh, at Henri uh, underscore Sala and make sure to also national or follow national geographics, pristine seas, which is at uh, NG underscore pristine seas. Thank you everyone for listening to the native plants, healthy planet podcast presented by Pilons nursery.
1: We will make sure we have all those links on the website, too. So you can go there if you're looking for any of the links we talked about. uh, You'll be able to find them all there. You can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or you can just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast.
2: Uh, I'd like to give – I'm always Uh, screwing up the ending. I was doing so well, too. (laughs) You were doing good. I was rooting for you. So I'd like to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at Pineland Nursery. Facebook is Pineland's Nursery NJ. Instagram is at Pineland's Nursery. Uh, And don't forget, I've actually been really enjoying your your Instagram, Dr. Sal, (laughs) as well. (laughs) A lot of good ocean pictures if you're into that. Um, So give that a follow as well. Or you can follow our YouTube account, which is Pineland's Nursery. And, uh, and like I mentioned before, don't forget about our Facebook group. We've had a lot of great conversations there, and they keep coming. The
1: conversations have been great. I, I'm really loving how active everyone's been recently, so keep it going.
2: Yeah, yeah. so thank you, everyone. I'm Tom.
1: And I am Fran. Uh, Dr. Sala, thank you again so much for being with us. Uh, thanks again, everyone. We will see everyone on the next episode. Until then, keep it native.